You can be seated. Well, we uh, hear a lot of talk today about presence, about being present. It used to be men and remote controls, right? If a man had a remote control in his hand, well, he was in the living room, but not really in the living room. And now it is men and women and teenagers, and it is Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We can be with people, but not really with them. We can be near people, but not really near them. And for many, I'm afraid it's how you think of God. He is everywhere you believe, but no place in particular. He is in the room, but not in your life. Surely you think he's got bigger fish to fry, more important needs to meet, bigger problems to handle. You think of God as distant and away. And the question that you grapple with is, is God really with you? This is a question that Israel in Ahaz's day, had to be asking, is God really with us? Ahaz was not the stellar king. He did not follow God nor worship him as he should, and the result was disastrous. This morning, from God's interaction with Ahaz, we'll discover three realities, three realities of the presence of God. And I'll just warn you, the first one is a bit dark and difficult, and it's this. God will be against you in rebellion. God will be against you in rebellion. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God had spoken to Ahaz already, and now God speaks to Ahaz again, and he says to him, ask me something. Ask a sign. Young in his commentary on Isaiah says that God is saying, I will move heaven and earth for you. It can be high as heaven, it can be deep as Sheol, or I will move heaven and earth for you, Ahaz, just ask. How will Ahaz respond? He fears two political enemies. He needs some help in his historical situation, so what will he do? How will he respond? Notice what he does. I call it religious platitudes. He he says this, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test, Ahaz says. I'm not asking God. Ahaz is in full-on rebellion. Ahaz saying, I will not ask, is the equivalent of Bobby Flay's daughter saying, I can cook without dad's help. 
Ahaz's I will not ask is like Stephen Curry's seven-year-old Riley insisting she doesn't need dad's help to learn how to shoot a basketball. It'd be like Peyton Manning's eight-year-old Marshall thinking he can learn football on his own. Ahaz, the king of Israel, refuses help from the king of the universe. That's what happens. Here he is. He's the king of a little spot on the planet, and he refuses help from the king of all, the king of everywhere, the king of everything. You see, rebellion against God is not a slippery slope. It is a fast track to disaster. Ahaz went from refusing God's help to sacrificing everything to get Molech's help. Let me explain. Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. He was a Mesopotamian god. Uh, They had built a statue to him. It was quite large. It had open arms and at the bosom, at the belly of the statue, there was a hole. And those who worshipped Molech were convinced that they had to bring their firstborn babies. And so they would build a fire around him and so as not to hear their babies' cries as their babies burned to death they would start the music and raise the volume and beat the drums and blow the horns so as not to hear their babies scream to death. Ahaz, king of Israel, leads his people to offer their firstborn babies to Molech. Ahaz so didn't need God, he wouldn't ask God, he wouldn't put God to the test, that he went on a journey, saw a pagan altar built to a pagan god, liked it, came back to Uriah the priest and ordered him to build one just like it and put it in the temple to the worship of the one true God so that In that temple, they both worshipped God and this pagan God. My dad used to say this. I'm sure he heard it from someone else. Sin will take you farther than you intended to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Sin is costly. If you set your face against God, he will set his against you. As a matter of fact, in verses 11, 16, and 17, the word you is singular. It is to Ahaz. In between, it's plural. We'll look at that in a moment, but it's singular. It's to Ahaz. Look, 
Verses 16 and 17, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You see, Ahaz dreaded kings of two lands, and he formed an alliance with the king of Assyria so that he could fight against those kings. He chose the king of Assyria over the king of the universe. He dreaded, he dreaded the kings of those two lands. That word dread means paranoid, sick fear. Ahaz became mentally ill. He was dreading so much those enemies. What happened? Well, those enemies were deposed. The king of Assyria came into uh, power and overthrew Israel. Matyar in his work on Isaiah says, sometimes the greatest punishment that can come to us is to have our own desires and prayers granted. The the first principle of the presence of God is that if you choose to rebel against him, he'll let you. He'll let you. I know some of you are thinking, well, Merry Christmas to you too. The uh, second principle gets better, and the third is quite amazing. God will be with you in physical poverty. That's reality number two. The looming question is this. Does Ahaz's rebellion completely spell doom for all of Israel? God says no. And he said, hear then, O house of David. God is speaking through Isaiah, his prophet. Is it too little For you to weary men that you weary, my God, also. Therefore, the Lord, what does it say, class? The Lord who? I think it's on the screen. All right, let's try that again. Are you with me? All right, when I used to teach at Montreat, when that happened, sometimes they just stand the rest of class. It made sure they were with me. All right, some of my students are in here and did that. All right, so, therefore the Lord what? There we go. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He'll eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. I love that phrase, the Lord himself Why? Because God's going to do something and he's going to do it himself. He's not going to send somebody to do this. And then there's the word behold. These are really good words. The word behold was a rather official term that said, hey, news is coming. It's like breaking news. Pay attention. Shall conceive and bear a son. That's most unexpected, isn't it? Why? Everybody in the room knows that if you need help with something, don't have a baby. 
Why? They're no help. No. No. Babies come and they take over. Don't they? All of a sudden, your whole schedule changes. Right? You're, you're, you're at a party and no, you have to leave. Why? Baby's got to go down. Bedtime. Everything changes when you have a child. Go, go. Wendy's grandmother who lives with us told us years ago, when you got kids, that's all you got. <laughs> and so it is. But help is going to come from a child. In the time of their deep need, he would come to his own, not by might or by power, but in the birth of a little child. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Perhaps the best way to understand this is I think sometimes when we think of someone, if we think of him as powerful as we should, which we struggle to do, we think of God being for us, which he is. But, but, but Emmanuel means God with us. It's a Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want kind of presence. I fear no evil for you are what? With me. That's Emmanuel. The presence is not God's deliverance, but God himself. Emmanuel is God with us, not his acts for us. But Emmanuel was also a little Hebrew prayer. Just the word. Especially uttered by moms and especially in childbirth. Why? It's hard, of course. And moms might say, oh, God be with me. God be with me. Emmanuel. Just a breath prayer. But especially a a woman who's never known a man who's having a baby. That's scandalous. And she claims that the baby is fathered by God. You better believe she's praying, God be with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that means engaged, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Look at this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. God, God be with us. I would say if you've ever parented for any period of time, you've received the phone call 
you've sat down with your son or daughter, and as the words came out of their mouth or out of that phone, you've said, oh, God, be with us. Oh, God, be with us. But the way Jesus is described, uh, the way this child in Isaiah 7 is described is less than ideal. He will eat curds and honey. Curds and honey were what you ate when there was nothing left. One time growing up, we must have run out of food. And for a week for dinner, we ate cornbread and milk every night. That's curds and honey. This baby, God will be with you in physical poverty. Jesus was born into want, not wealth. His mother was a young woman, most likely 13, 14, 15 years old. His surrogate father was a carpenter who built furniture. His cradle doubled as a feeding trough. Before he was two, he was a fugitive in Egypt. Bible scholars surmise that Joseph, the surrogate father, died while Jesus was young. And so most likely Jesus built furniture to put food on their table and to care for his mom and siblings. As a matter of fact, Jesus is quoted as saying, Foxes have holes, and birds of the airs birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He borrowed a donkey to come into town. He borrowed the upper room to have his last supper in and when he died, they laid him in a borrowed tomb. Jesus, the creator of all, owned nothing. It is the greatest riches to rags story ever told. And it's true. It means that God will be with you in the poverty of your life. If you've ever been hungry, so has he. If you've ever wondered how you're going to pay the bills, he got his taxes from a fish's mouth. If you've ever been weary, he has been too. If you're tired this morning, Jesus knows how you feel. However, our physical poverty isn't our greatest problem. God will be with you in spiritual poverty. Notice this phrase. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So when I read this, I think about the age of accountability, right? When your kids grow up and they know the difference between right and wrong. But sadly, for all of us growing up, we would not describe it exactly this way. We just reverse the order. 
what would we say? Notice it says, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, we would say, when he knows how to refuse the good and choose the evil. Why? It's what your kids do. They want what isn't theirs. They hit with their hands instead of hug. They cry when they get angry. But it's what we do too as adults. Trent and I, on Thursday, some reason, I decided that I wanted some sushi. And so on Thursday, I called Trent, and everybody else was going other directions. I think it was Thursday, yeah. And I said, Trent, you want sushi? And he was finishing ball practice, and he was like, yes. So we head up the mountain, he and I, just the two of us, to grab some dinner. As we're going up the mountain, there's this big, I guess, F-250, some kind of truck like that. It comes flying past us. We're in the middle lane, and there's a little, uh, looks like a Honda Accord or a Honda Civic. It's in the fast lane, but not going fast. So the truck comes right up flying past us, gets to that Honda, and basically, you know, is about to eat its lunch. Well, what does the Honda do? Nothing. It stays in the slow lane, but then Trent and I notice that it starts to go slower. (laughs) I'm assuming that there are two grown adults behind the wheels of these vehicles at this point. The Honda is going slower. The truck is getting closer. Oh, there's room for the Honda to move into the middle lane, but that ain't happening. No. And there's room for the truck to kick it into gear, leave the Honda in its dust, go up. But is that happening? Oh, no. No. Let's see how close we can ride. And so they keep doing that maybe for a mile. Until finally, I guess the Honda's had enough, slides over into the middle lane, at which point you would expect big F-250, whatever, Dodge Ram, whatever it is, you would expect it to zoom past the Honda. Oh, no. No, it now wants to be in the middle lane. Right on the Honda's rear end. I look at Trent. Trent looks at me, and I said, Morons. He said, exactly. Well, then, I guess the truck's had enough, pulls into the slow lane to pass the Honda, comes over and back over in front of the Honda, almost clipping the front of it, and then leaves it in its dust. Do you think they ought to know how to choose the good and refuse the evil? I would hope they have a license for Pete's sake. Do you know that Jesus never refused the good and chose the evil? Never. Not a slip up, ever. He always did it right. 
As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 15 of chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, speaking of Jesus, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived among the sinful without being sinful. He took on human skin but did not sin. Later, Isaiah writes, chapter 53, Therefore I will divide him, speaking of Jesus still, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was, here it is, numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the who? The transgressors, the sinners. Jesus, Luke 22, says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. I'm reading John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. It was this phrase, numbered with the transgressors, that caught my attention early in the book. It arrested my attention, you might say, and I paused to ponder. What what does it mean that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors? Here's here's how I think we could think of it. Look at this screen. You will see some mugshots of famous people. This is Joseph Stalin in 1911, arrested before he would go on to take over the Soviet Union and combine all kinds of atrocities. This next one is Charles Manson, who was finally arrested on December 2nd, 1969 for the August 9th, 1969 murders of five people. This next one is Lee Harvey Oswald, who was arrested on November 23, 1963 for one of the most infamous crimes in American history, the murder of President John F. Kennedy. This was O.J. Simpson, who was arrested on June 17, 1994, after that infamous car chase that stemmed from the murder of his wife and her friend. This person, look at that smile, John Wayne Gacy, arrested in Illinois for a string of 33 murders that took place over a period of six years. This next one is John Dillinger, lived during the Great Depression, spent time in jail for assault murder, and robbery. 
a smug killer. This next one is David Berkowitz, probably better known as the son of Sam, arrested in New York in 1977 for killing six people. The last one, Jeffrey Dahmer. A string of grisly crimes, including rapes, dismemberment, 17 murders, arrested in 1991. And then if we had one more screen and one more picture, his name would be Jesus. Arrested around 30 A.D. for his identification with the sins of Joseph Stalin, Charles Manson, Lee Harvey Oswald, O.J. Simpson, John Wayne Gacy, John Dillinger, David Berkowitz, Jeffrey Dahmer, and you, and me. He was numbered among the transgressors. He is with us in spiritual poverty. The cross was the electric chair of its day. He hung between two common criminals and took one of them to heaven with him. That's who we worship. If you here this morning have never received this Jesus as the substitute for your sins, on the cross. If you have never trusted him to save you when you're at your worst and at your best from your sins, then I would say to you this morning, there is no greater gift. If you've come this morning for religion, we have nothing to offer you. If you have come for a set of rules by which you can 
can live that will somehow set you free from besetting sin. We have no, 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 nothing there. But if you've come for someone who died for those besetting sins on the cross and took your place, we offer Jesus Christ to you. He will come in your heart. He will change your life. He will make you new. He is God with us. Would you bow your heads? If you are in the room this morning and this truth is one that you believe, you truly believe that your sin was that costly, would you just take a moment now and thank him? just in the quiet. I'll do the same. If you are here this morning and you have never received Christ in this morning, he has, through this word, become alive to you. You realize, oh, your sin put him on the cross with all heads bowed, nobody looking around. You say this morning, Jerry, I want to receive him as my Savior. I'm not here seeking religion. I, I truly need somebody who loved me enough to die for me and today I want to trust him with my whole life I've never done that but today I must would you slip up your hand in this room I want to pray for you not single you out you can find us later to talk if you'd like but you say Jerry today I want to pray to receive Jesus as my Savior. Just slip up your hand. Lord, thank you that, as Caleb led us to sing earlier, your mercy is more. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. 
poured into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Thank you. This Christmas, let Emmanuel, God with us in physical poverty and spiritual poverty be our song and be our reminder. In Jesus' name we pray.